this is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss Ecology and Historical Materialism by Jonathan Hughes. Profit can't melt steel beams. <laughs> All right. So I, I wanted to read this one because I want to look more. I got to continue to look at e- ecological stuff because I guess part of one of the things that kind of like freaks me out so much about uh, climate change and stuff like that, and get very increasingly like grim feedbacks we seem to be getting and projections is that you know within the imaginary of kind of the Marxist idea of a socialist or communist future, there is and always has been some kind of like post-scarcity element to it, right? And what's so terrifying for a communist about climate change is that it threatens to reimpose scarcity in a very harsh way. Um, And having that scarcity especially be managed by like an increasingly like brutal late capitalist system is it's fucking terrifying. So, like, looking at the ecological aspect of this is important, especially because within Marx's own body of work, it wasn't really Marx and Engels' primary focus. Uh, as we'll talk about uh, tonight, uh, in, in the context of this piece, they had they seem to have a pretty good balanced outlook on the, like ecological questions, and they seem to be pretty good on it when they did remark upon it. But it wasn't at like the center of Marx's analysis of political economy, or at least that's not really where his work started. It didn't seem to get to broader ecological questions in a big way, uh, except for maybe like his detour into um, an interest in, I guess, like soil tables and like the effects of like agriculture on like uh, quality of soil depletion, which was kind of became like one of Marx's hobby horses in the later years. But but this book, which we read, uh, Jonathan Hughes, Ecology and Historical historical Materialism. It's another piece that kind of argues that uh, the Marxist historical materialist framework um, can be interpreted in such a way that it actually probably provides maybe the best framework with which to look at and potentially ch- like tackle socially um, the ecological problems of industrial civilization. And uh, any just kind of initial... Um, Initial reactions to the book or any kind of upfront thoughts here? Well, the obvious thing for me is that other than reading Robert Brenner and his followers, this is probably our first proper dive into something that is self-consciously analytical Marxist. And I might have dropped that term here and there, but this is sort of my like theoretical wheelhouse is... This um, is basically like this style of doing Marxism and this approach that is, you know, con- continuous with like, I don't know, the norms that one would ta- tackle any philosophical topic. Um, that Marxism, even though it concerns something that is near and dear to all of our hearts, isn't necessarily like 
so different that you, you wouldn't like tackle it with the same tools that you would tackle any promising directions in thought or any body of ideas. That's, that's the thing that stands out for me from all the books that we've read previously. And um, if you look on like the first page or so here, the whole reason that I'm reading this book is just because I've been doing myself a little self-care and I'm reading the entire Studies in Marxism and Social Theory series. And I mean, I can't vouch for every single one of these books, but all of them that I've read are at the very least challenging to, you know, whatever leftist bugaboos and stuff that people tend to hold on to that aren't particularly helpful in like thinking through social questions. And um, anyway, that's, uh, I guess to comment on this book specifically, um, in a way this is building off of um, G.A. Cohen, the sort of nominal founder of this tendency. The book that he wrote is um, Karl Marx's Theory of History, A Defense, and that's um, that's sort of like the first self-consciously nominal analytical Marxist book. It uses a method very much like this one to sort of like lay things out in like, there's not that much like formal logic or something here, but it's just more of a stylistic uh, attempt to be clear, attempt to define terms, attempt to identify when people are using uh, a term in more than one way and to talk about the different ways that that's, you know, like what you would, you can weigh in differently on these different concepts, even though they're in the same word in the literature or something. Um, it's building off of this defense of a theory of history that I've always thought is like, you know, seems it's it seemed like a pretty, I don't know, I thought it was pretty subtle and, uh, you know, kind of insightful in, in how what people call dialectical interaction, so-called works, and it sort of abstained from the language of dialectical interaction. It wanted to maybe be a little more precise about what that is supposed to mean in historical materialist theory. And what most people... If you say the name G.A. Cohen to people, most people will think, oh, he's a technological determinist. I know this because Alan Wood said this. Um, and I feel like, yeah, there's an element that's there, but it's sort of like, it's overblown. And this book does a good job of not just like rebutting, but sort of like absorbing some of the criticism and expanding a classical sort of Marxist picture of historical materialism, the better kind, because even if we were using the same words as like some turbo tanks with like a, a one axis view of history, um, you know, there have always been Marxists that have taken historical materialism in a more intelligent sense. And, um, and you know, I think it's good to make contact with that part of the tradition, because everyone's aware of the, you know, real dumbasses you know, <laughs> who, who, who make mincemeat of the tradition. Right. I mean, I just want to say real quick, a recurrent theme of this is basically there is there is a productive way to read this. Right. You could read this in a shit. You could read 
you know, smokestack social and some back end of marks and angles if you wanted to. But there is a way of reading this that maybe opens things up in terms of how um, socialism or communism could relate to the environment. But I'm sorry, what were you going to say, Grant? I just wanted to put it out there. We're reading Jonathan Hughes. He's a senior lecturer in ethics now at Keele University. And he's um, maybe not somebody who is hugely famous in the Marxist canon. And often you'll find a lot of insightful Marxism that was written in the uh, 20th and early 21st century uh, does come out of these fringes, I suppose you could say, or people who aren't that connected to the organized uh, milieu uh, of Marxism, perhaps because of how dominated by certain Cold War imperatives and interests Marxism was for a while. So, I mean, I, I like that we're I like that we're reading somebody who who maybe isn't considered a, a big name in, in Marxist theory, uh, and uh, just to to double back a bit um, to the question of of climate change and and what makes it scary. I think it is quite scary, um, but I also think there is a temptation to take the most apocalyptic view of climate change possible that actually does a disservice to the people who will die in natural disasters and things of that nature. When you see groups like Extinction Rebellion, for example, that treat it as the literal end of civilization or or you get people who take it and go, well, I guess we can't have technology now and become so pessimistic about, about anything of that nature – and I, I think in truth, capitalism even, it'll be inadequate, but it'll be forced in some way to make these adjustments when things get bad enough. And it could even be that that need to, for example, coordinate across national lines leads to a sort of blocking of nation states that undoes some of the rigidity of that abstraction uh, that, that was so integral to building capitalism to its, its current state, but then capitalism has entered such a, such a place of inertia now. And I think it's very possible that that what we'll see over the 21st century is the start of not just from the proletariat side of things, but but in the class antagonism as a whole, some by force, you know, forced by conditions, an unwinding of some of the things that capitalism built itself on and have now become totally inadequate and not fit to purpose for even value extraction. And so uh, I do I do take I, I don't take a uh, optimistic view of climate change per se, but I don't think we know exactly what's going to happen, right? And well, that's I don't freaky. Think, it, it is, it is, absolutely. Yeah. And so that was le- that was less a rebuttal of what you were saying. I thought what you were saying was perfectly grounded, but there is, you know, you, you get people saying things like, you know, we're, we're going to need. I've never actually heard these terms defined, but I've heard thrown out eco-dangism and green war communism. And I mean, I don't know what that means, but it sounds it sounds worse than what capitalism's going to do. <laughs> I mean, it sounds fucking horrifying. I don't know. I, I'd be down for some green war communism. I want my fucking uh, I want my fucking like jumpsuit and like weed patch in, in like the collective garden or whatever, you know. 
I think a lot of these responses have in common a sort of common sense on the left that Hughes would consider Malthusian and Hughes would consider, you know, in the crossfire of a bunch of the things that Marx and Engels were saying about the environment. And yeah, I mean, arguably, Marx and Engels are too fucking old to understand what we're going through. But they thought, Hughes argues, at a general enough level where they still have things to say about our emphasis on demand reduction as the primary way that we're going to solve ecological problems. Right. Because, I mean, to me, green war communism sounds like using state power to impose austerity, which, I mean, we've seen what happens when you're sort of centrist liberal types take that about i mean the yellow vests in france that started over a an basically a, an austerity measure designed as a, you know disguised really as a, an ecological measure well, it's just like a joke and i don't think it's that just, I, I don't think that that you know i mean if, yeah if, like if, if it started now but if it was in like say after i don't know like, let's say like, there was a series of, like, resource wars that escalated into, like, regional conflicts that involved, like, nukes, you know? And then there's, like, massive damage afterwards, and you have to, like, relocate massive populations. You know, you know what I mean? Like, the, but the thing is, like, we could sit here all day, like, casting scenarios. What, what freaks me out, though, sometimes is that, like, sometimes I think maybe they don't actually know how bad it's going to get. Like, it's actually worse than they're projecting. Because they'll, they'll get like these, you'll read these weird feedback loops that are like way beyond what they expected. Like, there's a bunch of permafrost in the Arctic that's melting like 90 years ahead of the projections. You know, shit like that. And it's like, well, Jesus, what if it's like actually way worse than anything that they're, even like the worst case scenarios they're putting out there, you know? But anyway, right, and that's, possible. that's where I actually, that's where I have a bit of a tug of war because I can see scenarios where two, the you know a little bit of destruction becomes this i mean nuclear weapons have made world wars to uh you know you have the falling rate of profit and low growth those kinds of things and nuclear war has made it so that you can't just annihilate the composition of capital and restructure it as a way to kind of bring growth back which you know allowed for things like the post-war boom but then on the same token, there's also the chance that attempts to do that amidst like mass suffering would just be hugely delegitimizing for for uh, bourgeois nation states and things of that nature. So it's it's it, like you said, Jake. It's it's not something that we can do much fortune telling about. Um, but I feel like some of the fortune telling that casts the worst possible scenario almost has a kind of hidden. Well, and that's how we're going to get to drive our shit through <laughs> kind of kind of optimism to it that that seems uh, misguided or, or cynical. Really, <laughs> I think some of it comes to from wanting to like just rip the bandaid off. Like, can we just get the apocalypse going already? You know what I mean? Just I mean, kind of I... just looming there and we just sit here in a state of like constant, like low dread <sighs> as things get like slowly get shittier and shittier every year. You know, I understand that impulse, but in my head is still Carl Kautsky. In my head is still this, like, this look at, you know, whatever, like, 
history is going to throw at us, whatever crises we face, the overall outcome of the composition of forces, right, will have to do still in great deal with, you know, on the eve of the big crisis, who's got like enough cohesion and power. And I think about the proletariat not having in any organizations of its own, really. The proletariat being rather defenseless and these, you know, these kind of you know, schizoid soft power machine bureaucracies that can't tell their ass from a hole in the ground but still manage to, you know, dominate a good portion of the world. Like, um, and more sophisticated, targeted, and optimized kinds of like, uh, you know, capital. Capital is really the, <laughs> the, the real like instrumental threat that you can count on. Um, I, that all terrifies me. I, like if we don't get our shit together, which, you know, unless things really turn around, it seems like a fragmentation of, of the ability to kind of like do social action is going to sort of continue in this pathway like those crises mean like yeah there might be some things that spill out of control of like and that are unexpected but there'll be highly coordinated actors you know yeah the army basically yeah states and you know para-state formations funded by private capital like gunning for each other and you know using the general population the greater proletariat as cannon fodder and whatever else like that's not that's um we we would need much more social cohesion or you know proletarian cohesion or something a new international i don't even know what to call it i agree with that idea that you know social movements absolutely play a, a role um i don't know that it's we need to get our shit together and and everything hinges on that in, in the sense that well not uh, us organized specifically well, i guess what i'm saying i guess what i'm saying is that that you know if, if we're saying us as in the left for example no i, I didn't mean I, I us here on swampside chance... chats like not not you know you me and, and jake we have to get our shit together so we could pilot the ship you know and that's not what i mean i mean like it's a, the greater proletariat needs to to be able to defend itself in a sort of big way Right, but I, I guess I just – you have the majority of society, and based on the way things are going, I don't think trust in those institutions that you're talking about is is coming back anytime soon. In fact, I think it's slipping further and further every day. Which is And so which is their good. ability to and, – and That's you look good. At their ability to – Their ability to wage war, their ability to uh, even impose new policies, you know – "Quote unquote progressive or or reactionary policies has been impeded uh, from the the twentieth century ability to kind of just yeah we'll we'll start a war whatever I mean that is not as as doable nowadays and so I I, I do think that whatever is going on however they govern is going to have to deal with a restless and mistrustful proletariat." regardless of the state of the organized left. And I know that when you say 
that you're talk when you say organized social forces that you don't necessarily mean uh, that that we need an exact kind of copy paste of the the you know mass party from a hundred years ago part two or right or, or something it doesn't like matter that. what it is but it has to fulfill one of the roles the proletariat needs institutions otherwise it's just a mass of po- it's a population to be managed right and there need there needs to be some sense that it can be in fighting form like uh, that yeah i mean this gets into broader debates so we should probably jump into the specifics of hughes but i guess to to wrap up where i would land on that is just that i don't think those institutions even necessarily need to be explicitly uh, oriented around you know the the goal of communism or socialism and that yeah, if I w- you see I would broadly agree with that too if you see organizations of social self-administration filling in the gaps that the state leaves and that the market leaves uh in the in these crises i think that that has an effect whether people are consciously quote unquote uh, socialistic in their outlook or militant or radical or what no, have you. No, it's a matter of a, a conscious collective feeling out of, of, of social interest and the conversation about what a long term human social interest would be. That's how you get to Marxism. That, that It's all that like just simple feeling out what would really be best for humans. But it does have to eventually cohere around some kind of central idea. Most of these kind of institutions do. Like the church adheres around the idea of Christ, right? Like, so these institutions would have to at some point cohere around like some kind of like positive vision of humanity. Or well, I, I think of- you definitely want um, international coordination between uh, any kind of proletarian movements that, that come about. I just don't know that they need to... Self, and, and I don't think this means that there's not going to be struggle at the point of production and that there won't be workers involved, but I don't think they need to you know, self-conceptualize them in the in selves in the immediate term in the, the sense of you know, the workers' movement in, in, in the way that, that was done in the past. I mean, um, I think that it yeah, will have to take at least an anti-capitalist orientation. Like it'll have to be some kind of – we'll have to recognize that it is, is basically effectively negating class society or it will just be institutions that serve to reproduce it. Right. There's a sense that we need to be, or you know, one is defending themselves from capitalism by by looking at people that are in a similar situation and trying to do it together. But anyway, uh, yeah, we should. Yeah, let's dive in. Let's talk about this book. Okay, so the first section of this talks about uh, more or less kind of the debate around like anthropocentrism, which you know it kind of when you get into like ecological thought. You kind of, you tend to get into this kind of, I don't know if it's like, I guess it's like hippie shit, but like Gen X hippie shit, I would say. Like it's, it's, it's this idea of like, I remember like back in like the Wild West days of Left Book, uh, there was some professor from a local like kind of, kind of bougie, like, like liberal arts, art fuck school called like New College of Florida, right? Um. And it, it, yeah, it's like this kind of private school. It's real swanky. It's kind of I think it's like around Sarasota and that kind of area. Anyway, he was there was he was basically arguing that, um, saying that like basically cows produce value in a way that's consistent with like Marx's like category categories and definitions. And if you don't, if you say that they don't, like you're bigoted because you're speciesist. 
Well, do but, you um do you know who that guy's dealer is or? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. I do have some thoughts on speciesism, but you just started talking, so go ahead. Well, that, I mean, that was basically the gist of it, and this, this definitely kind of reminds me of that, like these debates about, you know, like we, we need to figure out a way to, like, basically being, like, human-centric is wrong, and we need to, like, ascribe intrinsic value to things in themselves outside of, like, outside of humanity, animals, and, you know, maybe even plants, Right. Yeah, I mean, I was um, I was personally a vegetarian for a while, and I have a lot of respect for that. Um, it's not what I do anymore, um, but I think that I think that you know, vegetarianism, veganism, I think that aspects of that being uh, mainstreamed in the sense that people who eat meat even can adopt them to some extent uh, could, could be a, a very positive thing for humans relationships with animals but i don't tend to think of species equality as it seems almost assumed that that is an that is the naturalistic way of looking at things and i don't think the alternative is necessarily a war of all against all you can look at kropotkin's um mutual aid on the evolution of the human species and, and apply that to even our interactions with other animals but i think we'd be be getting further perhaps actually cultivating and enriching our understanding of differences between humans and other animals uh treating species individually too you know i i, I do think of my dog differently than i think of a squirrel and i don't think that's just a, a an emotional attachment so much as what is the real relationship between humans and, and this species what how did we evolve together and i don't just mean biologically and and so understanding how they interact with us context wise is is to me more important than pretending humankind or any species species in nature could actually expand itself without encroaching at all on any other species you know that that to me seems like a a removal ironically enough of human beings from the animal kingdom more so than admitting and this isn't an argument against vegetarianism per se really but you know in a in a more holistic sense you know this idea that we can go about our business as a species without encroaching on other species at all seems to me unnatural if anything well it's impossible to have i think this is kind of what the author gets to when he advocates for a broad anthropocentrism which is that because like we are so we ourselves are the vehicle through which we relate to nature and the universe so we have to be anthropocentric like there's no way not to be um, right. Like, we're, we're subjective beings. Right. So, yeah, like any analysis uh, like or any like a, the way the way in which we act like by nature starts with ourselves. And so we already are, in a sense, going to prioritize ourselves in considerations over other things. Right. So for that reason, like, yeah, like we are kind of, I think, necessarily anthropocentric. And I think trying to create like a kind of non-anthropocentric ethos is just gonna you're, you're just gonna because yeah like there is there's basically conflicts within nature and you know if if we completely like how would if it was if it wasn't us that was number one what else what would be you know could would we say that like bacteria or viruses or we can actually navigate those conflicts with more empathy if we admit that they exist uh esri yeah yeah uh jake you were just making uh making a nod towards the <laughs> trying to really take the idea of, um, you know, an unlimited intrinsic value in all natural entities when considering, you know, 
the outlook of the AIDS virus. You know what I mean? Like, and how, like, I think that, you know, the example is, is there to draw out just how, uh, untenable that would be, um, for, you know, if you were to try to, like, include human life as being <laughs> also, <laughs> uh, also intrinsically valuable. <laughs> and, um, I don't know. There's the distinction between broad and narrow anthropocentrism. The distinction being that the narrow anthropocentrism only has an instrumental value to nature. And uh, the broad one admits that there can be, you know, intrinsic value to nature. Not just, you know, extrinsic things based on variety that, like, that that are useful to humans, but that, like, I don't know. You can still look at, you know, animals as persons and moral subjects and whatever, in addition to, like, you know, having a sort of obvious affinity to human persons. Like, for instance. Um, that's It's something I think is important. I mean, I've been a... I've been a vegetarian for uh, 15 years. I'm mostly vegan for 10. I love those Dunkin' uh, um, egg and cheese sandwiches, though. And, I mean, they're like 50% powder, you know? Um, um, yeah, I'm pretty sympathetic to veganism and stuff like that. I eventually, probably, I'm going like, to cut an- cut animals out of my diet 100%. I'm, like, starting with, like, cows and, like, uh, pigs. But, like, but you know, I, I mean... <laughs> But yeah, I just I think anthropocentrism is just kind of even a bad axis for understanding this stuff because you know there can be there can be utilitarian value in the existence and flourishing of wild nature to human civilization. So yeah, yeah, and and um, when it comes to to what you said about you know you're not a vegetarian, for example, but you want to cut out certain animal products, I think that 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 actually speaks to a little bit of what I was talking about before with the way we can integrate the contributions of veganism and vegetarianism into world culture but you know with political veganism uh and I, I mean political veganism not just you know what people do which i think is a great personal choice it, it sometimes gets hung up on this idea that everybody needs to do it now right so people in wildly different circumstances than us that are still in you know peasant societies right there's not really a way for them to feed themselves in a lot of cases, existing health and agricultural infrastructure that they have on that basis. In a lot of countries, you can, but it's not something that we would ever be able to impose on the entire world in one fell swoop, right? And so you're going to need to have some people who do it rigidly, and I don't mean rigidly as a bad thing in this case. You need to have some people who do it in a mixed way, and you need, and you'll you'll have some people who don't do it at all for a while. And I think that that's actually how the, the change can happen because if if you get into this view that all of it is just so morally reprehensible that you can't touch it at all, well, then I feel like the conversation about factory farming, for example, ends up down this blind alleyway where you can't you can't talk to people because the only thing that you're proposing is that they stop doing this, you know, personal life choice immediately. Whereas I think we we really, if we care about animals, we need to get people who eat meat on board with the idea that the way that uh, food production works now is atrocious because it is. And so 
and and two, what you were saying about you know pigs as a specific example. I think that when we have that sort of species being, um, especially in a self-coordinated communist society where we can actually have conversations as a society, I think that we can actually start looking at the uh, among people who do eat meat. We can start looking at the hierarchy of of animals in, in a in a sense where we're we're evaluating morally. All right, like because what got me into vegetarianism when I was a vegetarian was was comparative cognition with animals, a, a class I took. And so, yeah, because you loved and, your and dog, not just my dog, right? But but just knowing, you know, thinking of of animals as having a subjective experience and knowing that there are different levels of cognition that then put put things on a spectrum with us, right? And so pigs, being very smart, I actually feel more more guilt, for example, when I consume, you know, ham than I would when I ate chicken. You know, and that 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 is a thing that can start and that sounds that is really the most speciesist way of looking at it, but it's actually a speciesism that could start that conversation and move things in the direction that ve- vegans and vegetarians want things to go in, in a way that's also realistic for other people. Yeah. I think some, I think sometimes, um, I think people aren't like, a like, I don't know, people aren't like anthropologists enough to understand how important, um, food is to culture and like ethnicity and like, you know, lifestyle like how like central it can be and um the the idea of like imposing this from above would inevitably be a real like imperialist venture um and i don't know if you want to see a really bad way of doing you know vegetarian politics you look at like well look at like the hindu extremists the um the bjp and like the way that they want to institute a beef ban like, you know, I'm a vegan, a beef ban. Oh, right, that sounds pretty good, right? Well, what if it's like basically the religious right, like moralistically imposing something? It's not like a, a popular measure that like will provide people with a subsidized tasty, like, you know, substitute that is acceptable. <laughs> you know, like... um this is like a really flawed way of of looking at things um well we're gonna we're just gonna have to get in the weeds like a lot of a lot of vegetarianism political vegetarianism like explicitly doesn't like it doesn't take this like practical angle that a lot of the a lot of like i don't know like peter singer and that sort of stuff the animal liberation stuff that's all done in like analytical philosophy basically and people can get like real weird about it there's a whole like kind of lifestyle called effective altruism or something it sounds a little bit like a cult but like just the you know the basic moral arguments to me seem like they they hold pretty well and it's never really like come into conflict with like marxism for me or something because you know I don't think you're going to, like, be able to jump there. This is why I like, you know, rep, you know, replicators and, like, dumb 3D printed, like, fake food shit. Like the Impossible Whopper and the, uh, you know, the new fake sausage, Beyond Sausage, you can get at Dunkin'. You know, like, I love that that stuff is commonly available. It's, um, I don't know. Like, 
it's it's stupid and like <laughs> but basically liberal kind of market individualism has actually made quite a big difference in demand <laughs> if you're worried about demand for these things if you want to do demand reduction um which again most of what you know he's criticized like most of this critique of Malthus comes down to the focus on reducing demand but I don't know if you think of it this way is that you know vegetarians that kind of shit like they're the most successful like sort of vote with your wallet like market politics thing where actually like a voluntary cut in demand that was sort of evangelized but not like it was pretty loose it's more of you know it's like just seeing as like an, one option out of many that you can do, like with a diet, you know, I think you might be gluten free or you might. It's part of the yeah the, the whole diet wave well, yeah, and like yeah, yeah, yeah. lifestyle shit on its own. You know, <laughs> capitalism has made a lot of people skeeved out by dairy or or milk in particular. You know, like yeah, I pre- yeah. I would prefer to have you know oat milk in my coffee or what have you. Yeah, and you have a lot of know. varieties. You have a lot how are they of making that shit, shit though? You know what I'm saying? Like that nut milk. Like how are they getting that much juice out Jake, of some you, fucking you nuts? You know how they make. You know what I'm saying? It's they a, can't you know possibly. They can't. It's a suspension. Yeah, so, soylent, soylent nut milk. It's people. <laughs> Basically, you just like put nuts in a blender and suspend it in water. It's not hard. Is that is that all it is? That's really, that, like, that's it. I look at the ingredients. It seems like there's a bunch of there's way too many ingredients, <laughs> like in the in like the almond milk and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I anyway, fu- I fucks with a little xanthan gum. You don't like xanthan gum? I fucking love xanthan gum. <laughs> um. So okay, uh, let's go. Let's move on. Go on to Malthus. This is the next level. You know, this the next the the mal the. So if 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 the impossible whopper is the anthropocentric solution um soylent whopper that's the malthus solution <laughs> yeah grant you want to give a lowdown on marx and malthus i know i, I knew this would be your favorite section I'm, well i was happy I think that, that you mentioned something to me about malthus I, well to me, what's like, interesting to me is here uh i don't have this conversation often myself so i can't say for sure but the way certain groups on the left not everybody tend to knee-jerk pivot to labels like trotskyite reactionary and so on to kind of group people together based on you know you hear a keyword and you know what slur to use i think there's a considerable number of people if you have and it'll increase uh on the left as this climate change thing becomes more of an issue where probably if you mention population at all as an input factor when you're looking at potential climate change outcomes you're just going to hear the word malthusian um and I think so. I think something we should do is clarify what makes something Malthusian. I have an idea of what that might mean, um, but just to pivot, Hughes cites Marx and Engels claiming that Malthus is simply wrong that there's a natural tendency for population to expand. For example, because that's something Malthus puts forward. A- Engels, in particular, attacks Malthus because he's using his theories basically as an ideological smokescreen for opposing any measures which would improve the lives of the poor. You know, oh well, we can't give them food, then they'll they'll breed is basically how Malthus looks at poor people, right? And so instead, Marx and Engels argue that population growth is socially contextual. And now this is kind of the common sense view, even among people who aren't Marxists, as it should be, because historical experience is borne out. We see many countries today with stable, low population growth, uh, and so it, it just strikes me that. 
Marx and Engels are really pointing to this idea, for example, that basically this specific view that population growth creates a tragedy of the commons type of scenario that presents humanity with an existential threat in its own terms, whereas, say, the key primary driving force behind something like climate change. Maybe that's what is specifically Malthusian would be to to bring this tragedy of the commons type of argument into play. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, the overpopulation thing is a recurrent thing. I think one aspect of it I've always said is that it just comes from stepping back and looking at the insane like scale of civilization <laughs> where it's like you know just look like you know human beings for most of our existence it, you know, existed in tribes of 100 200 people and stepping back and just going look at all these fucking people you know what i mean are we feeding all these fucking people you know and they're just they're just gonna have more and more kids you know uh, and some of it is just a, a general kind of yeah like contempt for poor people right like look at the Gates Foundation investing all this money, like sending contraceptives and shit to Africa, right? As if like, as if like Africans are going to be responsible for like climate change or any of the increased pollution. Like, yeah, maybe if they're having per capita more children, but the amount that those children will consume will be like a fraction of one. Of well, them. and I think too, yeah, yeah what what like that it, stuff means it, too. It's just a it's just a condemn for poor people what, and what, racism, you know. What matters with population first and foremost. Uh, and what good outcomes might flow from looking at it as a consequence is less, oh, what what can we get out of this? And more, well, why do people have a lot of kids in certain places, right? It, it, because there's certain technical restraints on social freedom that low-income countries face. So when you look at, they can't when you look at conditions pants. behind most places with high birth rates, it doesn't seem like that's a free choice per se. Instead, you have these often these economic and familial pressures to have children in part due to these healthcare deficits, which don't leave, if you have a single or two child household, you don't have a guarantee you'll have any adult children by your old age. Or in a rural area, maybe there's a need for agricultural purposes to have larger families. And I think this goes for carbon generally. There's this idea among environmentalists that we need to all go green right now. And it actually kind of parallels the vegetarianism and the population argument pretty well too, because it really leaves the developing world stuck in relative poverty and acts as though we could simply stop climate change at this point. And I think it's more a matter at this point of the need to mitigate what's inevitable because the very possibility of renewable energy that we have in developed countries, so, so-called, is based on a carbon backbone. So instead, it's likely that countries which are not in this post-industrial stage would need to develop their capacity through means that include carbon-based energy in order to even be able to adopt renewables. And alongside that level of infrastructure comes the kind of social freedom where people can choose how many kids they want to have. And when we look at the kind of choices people like to make when they have freedom born of those advancing social conditions, the choice people often want to make is to have as many or as few children as suits them. And so, you know, I, I think that for, for some of the left, the state is this automatic tool for reaching desired outcomes. And so discussing population growth in a way that sees stability as a favorable in some way implies this desire to wield coercive power or austerity. And that may be, you know, if you look at the future predictions of population growth, I think it would be perfectly reasonable to suggest that when looking at several future arcs, that for reasons that aren't about environmental resource scarcity, that the favorable outcome 
would-be slow and steady growth or an eventual leveling out of population. Uh, but that would be favorable because it would reflect equivalent access to health resources internationally, if anything. Well, is it the- a couple of things. One, we actually pre- we actually do need to get like off fossil fuels as fast as possible. Uh, like, and we can't do that if we use like nuclear power. Um, that, that's one thing. And two, I mean, like you can only mitigate so much. And a lot of these countries, well, some of them, like places like Bangladesh, the outdoor wet bulb temperatures will get so hot they'll literally be physically uninhabitable. So those people can't actually like adapt to that except by mass human migration and the other thing is especially in africa and anywhere around the equator people's capacity to grow food is going to be decimated by climate change so like you know like it like exacerbating by like in continued like carbon production uh is a problem that said yes the third world should get more allowance for that sort of thing and that's a big reason why the paris climate agreement is going to fail it's going to fail for the same reason the versailles treaty failed where it basically says like the big imperialist countries get to keep everything they have and what they're doing but all the poor countries have to kind of stay where they are um so there's so there's that um but being like the like the malthus stuff here he i haven't actually like read any like quotes from him or looked at his thought all at all but it really struck me just how much contempt he really has for poor people and like malthus almost seems to think like nature like nature is the thing that like punishes man for like improvidence and debauchery right like nature is like this force that exists and like it just punishes people for weakness so we have to like just let the poor like suffer and starve otherwise like nature will punish all of us you know Sinners like it's this weird angry god um yeah yeah almost like kind of yeah protestant like outlook yeah there's no question that malthus is an ideologist for the crown like that's his you know animating reason for being but the way that marx and Engels argue against malthus is and and the way that hughes like structures the thing because he starts with all right well clearly malthus is doing ideology but more or less for marx and Engels, like pointing that out isn't good enough because ideology in a way it doesn't care if it's true but that doesn't mean that it's not true. You have to, once kind of doing ideology critique, in order to do good, you know, scientific Marxism, whatever, you also have to engage with why, you know, is this argument true regardless of its ideological value? Like, and that's... um Right, there's a great part where he says it doesn't, it's not enough for Marx... Uh, to say that this doesn't lend itself to emancipatory aims. Well, there's possibilities that certain factors of reality would impinge on emancipatory desires, right? And so we we have to not just say Malthus is wrong because he's uh, hates poor people, which he certainly does, but we need to articulate a historical materialist reason if this is true why his theory is is scientifically invalid yeah um not directly related but um sort of thematically related and certainly part of this chapter is hughes really resonant um 
kind of reading of historical materialism and the development of the productive forces in qualitative terms. And this is always the lens I was bringing to reading Marx and even G.A. Cohen's book on Marx um, and their notion of the growth of the productive forces. It didn't seem to me like the Bolsheviks often got this or, or something like, or some of the political Marxist tradition would think of it, you know, I don't know. There's this Trotsky quote from the revolution betrayed when he's reviewing Soviet unions, like tons of steel, you know, like, you know, there's a qualitative sense of, you know, the growth of productive forces. That's very obvious in the political Marxist tradition. Uh, something that maybe like post stone harps on the most about, like in, in a in an interesting Marxist way, but um, but you know, ultimately, like developing independence from fossil fuels would be a qualitative shift in productive forces in in efficiency, in in you know sustainable efficiency. Like you could consider that a great technological advancement. I don't see why you wouldn't, um, and that's the sort of you know, technological of Marxism there. Like it's not necessarily an embrace of capitalist technology, um, but it's a, a sort of, um, you know, there's something aspirational about it. Like without that, I don't think you can kind of correct for a lot of the things that make communism seem impossible in a lot of different aspects of life, honestly. Do you feel like the um, expansion of the term Malthusianism in this book is uh, is overshot the way that you you see elsewhere, or did you think that this is a fair criticism, the way that he defines Malthusianism as like uh, like neo Malthusianism is is not necessarily based on population directly, but in terms of demand reduction. I think that demand reduction is a fine way of looking at it. I probably a better way of looking at it because. Then we're we're really getting to that core Malthusian principle that the problem of population is a problem of the tragedy of the communes and this this imminent limit on society's interaction with nature. When in in truth, what I would say, you know, my fear with the term Malthusian would be that you basically use it as an excuse not to talk about the problems that it creates for people in places with high population uh, growth, not even necessarily that the problems that population creates, but the problems that population grows rapidly in response to. And I, I could see Malthusian becoming a kind of uh, smokescreen behind which people are unwilling to talk about uh, global health issues in, in a certain way. And I don't think that's what's being done by the text now. Uh, three, chapter three is Marxism and the Ecological Method, which is probably some of my favorite um, parts of this book. It's uh, kind of getting into the sort of like metaphysical ecology, kind of bong rip hippie shit. I mean, you know, that like, and it's a sort of common refrain that like, you know, that there's a more like holistic kind of 
way of doing things. It's like a special methodology. See, to me, I'm so like soaked in Marxism that like I can smell the dialectics on that. But like there are a lot of people that are so far removed from the Marxist tradition. They're not even really aware of where these like claims of an alternate methodology gained their importance during the Cold War, you know, as like ideological insulation from, you know, Washington bourgeois propaganda. Um, And I don't know. In the Cold War, like you often heard these claims to alternate methodology and honestly with some justice as being like well you know the marxists the men they don't understand you know the the connectedness of it all and you know if you're talking about like these fucking like you know robo tanks yeah no no they don't understand the connections of shit like yeah that's that's probably fair like um and you know they no they were not like thinking holistically about a lot of things like in the same way that you know capitalists like obsessed with industry and uh, domination are not like you know group hug like holistic thinkers in the mid you know mid 20th century like so yeah with some justice they had this but they're ignorant of how much the marxist tradition by that point had deviated from you know something that as far as the author is concerned, basically puts a lot of this metaphysical ecology, so-called stuff, in much clearer terms and isn't so fucking sweeping about it. Isn't so, like, blanket, you know, writing off the possibility of, you know, potentially connecting different bodies of theory to each other, um, of of doing some limited forms of like reduction in order to do good argumentation in order to do like understand things in order to analyze things, you know, a kind of blindness to small details and, you know, little Lego models that might not correspond directly to the real world. Like, you know, connects a lot of bong rip hippie ecology and some of the like, vulgarized you know forms of dialectics that is sort of like you know bandied about in like uh (laughs) in bad marxism (laughs) like there's there's a there's a similarity there there's a methodological similarity and a kind of dullness to uh, something that you know marx and angles are demonstrably in favor of (laughs) and this chapter makes this stuff like really Yeah, it, it does a good job of kind of showing how, yeah, a lot of the, the sort of yeah the holism and, and stuff that they were that era of kind of ecological thought was trying to get at was already probably better articulated in like the work of Marx and Engels because they had maybe a clearer a clearer sense of how human production relates to nature. And like the sort of metabolism between man and nature and that sort of thing. And how I get, yeah, like Marx and Engels were already kind of like imbibing on kind of dialectical thought, you know, back in like the 1800s. And, but they were, you know, they were doing it kind of in a more systematic way. Um, and they weren't as, I guess, um, like there is, there seems to be kind of this allergy to rationalism, uh, particularly this idea of like, 
got to get out of like this rigid Newtonian worldview, man. You know, we get to embrace like an organic. Uh, whatever, right. I mean, you, know? you look at um, historical materialism generally, and some of the rigid categories get, that get thrown around in Marxism. Marx and Engels didn't think that having a generally true idea of, say, the progression of modes of production to kind of take us back to a recent episode, um, they didn't think that that meant, you know, you could go about historical analysis not looking at the specificity in, um, in particular terms of a historical period. I mean, you you really can't understand. You, do do you really understand feudalism if you're not like reading about some of the stuff that actually happened? I mean, the the schemes hold up often when you when you go into, but it enriches your understanding of things like modes of production or what have you to actually look at what happened. Was that was that a bit tangential? I feel like that was a bit tangential. What do you mean? It's a bit tangential. It's a swamp side, baby. But I mean, no, really. Like uh, the, I don't know. Like a lot of this methodological stuff. Yeah. This is uh, this is a lot of things that I'd I'd like to like drag out for people. But um. Yeah, this my my notes got kind of illegible here. I think the, I think my pen wasn't working properly. <laughs> my my dog ate my. There's home a good work. conversation here. Yeah, yeah. There's a good conversation here about reductionism that I think is um is really useful and interesting, and you know, people in the Marxist tradition will definitely recognize this stuff, but it's. Something that, you know, you're getting into, like, analytical philosophy of science and, like, you know, the decomposition of, you know, like, one level of analysis into another, you might say. Like, that's, um, this is something that, you know, I don't know, in critical theory, like, the Althusserians kind of brought this in, you know, whereas previous Marxists insisted on... A sort of you know ontological like you know monism you know there's one thing and so you know a lot of them kind of make a sort of vulgar assumption maybe that that therefore you know there's maybe like one way of analyzing things that is like the most important and you know you don't really need to engage that much with other disciplines except to make that point uh Althusserians you know as much as I'm like not a fan of like a lot of their turns one thing that they did right is accept that there's different like levels of description of the world that are going to be useful and um in theory you might be able to completely explain one field using the terms of another field right but um that doesn't mean that that totally explained field that, that that language, you know, it might be still useful. It might be still more directly useful. And to look at it on that level still might have, like, scientific utility and truth. Um, that's, like, a hard sell for a lot of people. Because if you can explain something in terms of something else, why not just 
you know, use that something else as the master science, right? Like, it's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of weird. Like, if you said that, you know, I don't know. It's, it's like saying that, um, I don't know, like, uh, if you said that, like, sex was a form of class or something, right? Like, let's say you're making a class reductionist argument about sex. Um, and you, you say that, you know, sex can completely be explained by, like, class elements. Um, but it's, like, still useful to talk about sex on its own terms. Like, and that those things aren't incompatible. That's, like, a pretty, you know... I don't know, a hot take version of, of like an argument there, but that, that would be the, like that, you know, I'm just like, if you fill in logically what's going on there, that's the kind of well, thing that's and I at think stake. On a, on a, to bring things a bit more basic, uh, in terms of something that we're all definitely familiar with in terms of not being willing to draw on other traditions, there's a kind of ontological or actually weirdly enough there's there's almost a what's the word in identity politics standpoint theory there's almost a standpoint theory that i think some marxists take up with people who are from quote unquote bourgeois traditions or something like that so you know somebody for example who is a academic who's just kind of a political scientist and they did their PhD on Stalinism, and maybe they hold a, a kind of Cold War American view on, on the Soviet Union, right? But maybe they dug into the archives, and they've done some research, and they have some parts of their work are, are really historically grounded and scientific about what happened under Stalin's rule, right, as a system. Well, a lot of times, and you'll see this with stuff that's less – that's less easy for certain parts of the left because obviously some parts of the left will just be nodding along if I say Stalin bad, right? I mean that's almost low-hanging fruit for a lot of people. But things that are more controversial – but things that, are, things that are more controversial too, you'll get into this standpoint theory of, well, that was come up with by a bourgeois academic or that was come up with by somebody who isn't part of the Marxist tradition. And so they weren't thinking dialectically enough or some shit like that. And it is really an intellectual blunting of your powers to think that you can't bring that into your worldview in a cohesive way because that person, you think they're kind of blinded by ideology in some area of the, uh, of the world. Therefore, they, they can't know anything. And it's, it's, it's not helpful. It's, it's not – it doesn't let you look at the full picture. It doesn't let you do science really. I mean there were – when if you're thinking about medieval times, right, I'm sure there were, there were scientists who agreed with the Catholic Church in, in many respects but then had maybe one thing that they thought that was heretical and that was, you know, the, the – the thing that they got burned at the cross for, you know? So it, it, it just makes me think that people who are from traditions that are kind of laughed at or cynically dismissed by Marxism 
that they can still have things to say. And that might maybe the thing they say is the only thing they say. But we can't assume that because somebody is part of X theoretical group that we can then abstract out all their opinions from there. Well, standpoint stuff does come out of Marxism originally. At least one Marxist. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that uh, Georgi Lukács, right, the Hungarian like minister in the short term, I think he was a culture and education minister in the short term, like a Hungarian Soviet Republic that lasted for like less than a year or something, and um, uh, yeah, his um, history and class consciousness, where there's a sort of standpoint epistemology of the proletariat. Originally, it was something like, you might say, like an autonomist sort of theory or maybe proto-autonomist Marxist kind of thing. But then, like, as as time went on, um, he became more like in... I think this might have just... I don't know to what degree this is because of bureaucratic bullying, but eventually he adapts this to be not really like the proletariat itself, but, you know, the organizations of the proletariat start to be able to articulate this class truth in the same way that the proletariat does, which I think fundamentally changes the theory, but also kind of gives you a neat, a a very neat summary of how Western critical theory and political Marxism are connected in one central sort of genuinely ideological in the sense of distorting kind of move is this way of cutting yourself off from, you know, the rest of literature. You know, there's another Marxist at the same time who writes another book that is popular in the critical theory tradition, although not as much. Karl Korsh's Marxism and Philosophy, who essentially articulates that actually what we need to do is open ourselves up to the rest of literature, you know, the rest of like the different fields that Marxists are doing interdisciplinary science in, uh, and, you know, and, and integrate ourselves into that stuff. He essentially argues the opposite of what the Lukash tradition in its two variants, you know, ends up saying. Well, you know, I mean, you can't be like, well, there's not really any literary value to Dante's Inferno because he's a dead white man. I mean, it, 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 it... Yeah, Italians aren't white. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. <laughs> no, I, was, I actually like Lukács' like, like thing where... Because what he's, in the original thing, what he was talking about was how like Marx was able to understand like capitalism because he basically examined the political economy from the standpoint of the proletariat, right? And by ex- examining capitalism through the lens of the proletariat, it kind of revealed the truth of the system more than you would just looking at it from like a sort of narrow bourgeois perspective, which I think I think there's some truth to that. But anyway. I mean, it's, it's an awesome reading of Marx, like, and it's also something that like is a, it's, I always give Lukash credit for this, but it's like a predictive reading of Marx because he kind of read like uh, he kind of reverse engineered Marx's theory of alienation from just knowing Hegel so well and then approaching Marx and being like, oh, I see what he's doing. Like 
And uh, so he's a really sophisticated reader of Marx. The Western critical theory tradition is like still pretty interesting, even though it's flawed. Um, like this standpoint epistemology is useful. And if you, if you kind of connect this to the conversation we we're having about Dietzkin and the um, kind of radical kind of almost Janus, like, you know, democratic, like epistemology that he had going with, that was like much more universalistic in spirit. It's like a good, you know, counterpoint. Uh, one of them is really sort of emphasizing the particularity of the class viewpoint. Whereas for Dietzkin, you're, you're really, you know, this is the universal scientific truth. There's, there's no difference. Well, if we could, if things. we could do a bit of synthesis, I would say that part of what makes the proletariat have a unique subjectivity, if we want to put it that way, is it's it, it has a particular perspective, but that particular perspective perspective also lends itself to a a universal character, right? I mean, uh, Marx says that. The proletariat is a class with radical chains, a class of civil society, which is not a class of civil society, a sphere which has a universal character by its universal suffering and claims no particular right because no particular wrong, but wrong generally, is perpetuated against it. And so he says the dissolution of society as a particular estate is the proletariat. So estate, class, that kind of thing, you you see a it's not the dissolution of society is the proletariat the dissolution of society as a particular estate is the proletariat so it, because the proletariat doesn't belong to some kind of empowered uh class within productive relations it has not a not a standpoint theory in the sense of being the only ones who hold this metaphysical truth but instead it's the clarity of proletarian vision comes from being the the majority of society and from being um of not having those particularist interests embedded in capitalism yes the next section uh next chapter is historical materialism locating society and nature um this part he kind of lays out um so we talked about two sides of the relation in terms of uh, the reciprocity of the human nature relation. Uh, it kind of lays out three main points. One, the principle of ecological dependence states that humans are dependent upon nature for their survival and consequently for anything else that they may wish to do. And that the characteristics of the nature they confront have significant casual or causal impact uh, upon the course of their lives. And two, the principle of ecological impact states that human actions have significant effects, planned and unplanned, upon nature. And then the third principle he adds is the principle of ecological inclusion states that humankind is a part of nature. And so he claims that, um, yeah, all this stuff is within Marx's work. Well, even, uh, you know, the idea of historical materialism so, has or, to start from humans meeting their basic needs i often see in in some of the better introductions to marx's thought that you get this almost state of nature uh hypothetical where it's like okay why is production the basis 
through which we understand society. Why, why choose? Because it could be viewed as this economism where you're just, why are you choosing class? Why are you choosing labor? Why labor? Why production? Well, to exist. Immediately, the human species is in this intercourse with nature where to perpetuate itself, to survive, humanity needs to engage in labor to acquire food, shelter, etc. And so that is immediately, and human beings do so socially, right? We cooperate in order to meet those needs. And so that immediate in being a part of nature, engaging with nature, that is tabula rasa man's state. And so what is what is that engagement with nature but labor? And so that allows you to, if you follow that chain, you can realize that human production is foundational. Yeah, I think I think was the, was this the section where they kind of talk about how you know there is this kind of concern that you're basically like instrumentalizing nature by reducing it as like the objects that the worker works upon, or is that the next one? I, I... Yeah, I think that uh, that might be later on here. What they're getting at here, or what Hughes is getting at here, is something much more basic that. Um... <laughs> that like just the matter of like causality between humans and their environment and that there's like ecological dependence means that anything else they wish to do like they have to confront you know the reproduction of their lives like in a way it's kind of hard to believe sometimes that people don't take this as their kind of primary mode of analysis because it does seem so self-evidently important like uh just for like the behaviors around securing the reproduction of an organism not and you know not just a you know social reproduction of the organism but you know you know biological like you know gotta eat (laughs) gotta sleep (laughs) like stuff like it is kind of amazing that that this doesn't come to the forefront of analysis as much as you'd think it as, as it would. Like, well, it's so it's you know it's like it's like the air you know it's just what we breathe it's what we live and breathe you know it's I, I mean because like I guess yeah production is so it is so in, maybe because it is so ingrained it's something you almost have to like I don't know smoke some weed or DMT or something to really see it as like an active force in terms of shaping things. You know, everyone wants to, when it comes to history, everyone wants to look at, you know, like the the songs of legend and wars and, you know, the, the sort of great leaders and so on and so forth and sort of ignore the way that, you know, the the, the, the entire base of it. Yeah. Is is how we like produce food and how. Right. We feed what are you doing in everyday in life to reproduce life, that you know? society is going to tell you more about, you know, maybe it more about it than its conquests over other societies. Per se, and and one thing I like too, Hughes brings in critique of the Goethe program. I think in this section, right, um, where at some point Hughes brings in Goethe program, and the first thing Marx says here, he takes on that the Lasallians say labor is the source of all. Eh. 
The first thing that Marx does here is takes on the fact that the Lasallians say labor is the source of all wealth and culture. Marx says labor is not the source of all wealth. Nature is just as much the source of use values, and it is surely of such that material wealth consists as labor, which itself is only the manifestation of a force of nature, human labor power. So right there, we have labor is not the source of all wealth. Human labor power is a force of nature. So to, to really... It would be hard to argue against Hughes that a lot of – and this is so such, such a great thing about Marx too is that Marx will say these kind of one-off things that, that end up having a lot of meaning. And clearly this is one of them. Uh, there is the funny idea from that uh, – I don't know if this you know, rightly or wrongly that Hughes pins on Kolowalski that um, – that – Essentially, that kind of like, you know, society creates nature like in a kind of bong rip way. Do we all read this the same way? It's kind of like Kowalski. Because there's a lot of things in this book that I really like and that I think, you know, sound like plausible. Um, You know, like the reports of the positions being put out there sound plausible. But Kolowski sounds kind of like, you know, like a, you know, real radical relativist when it comes to natural truth. Yeah, no, I remember, I remember reading this section and thinking like that is, it sounds like this Kolowski guy has a very bizarre read on Marx. It, it, it feels like a very like Pomo. Almost, I don't know, maybe like Derrida or like rereading of like Marx where every, every everything is like yeah I don't know I don't know how you would even get that out of like reading Capital or something yeah I don't know how you'd get that either I almost wonder because Kolowski has does that like huge main currents of Marxism like three volume work three three volume work on like the whole history of Marxism and he starts from like Plotinus or some shit like um and so I would be very surprised if he had that radical of a take on Marx's epistemology or something. That that would surprise me greatly. I mean, you know, I should I shouldn't say that though because there's a lot of thinkers that are pretty brilliant and really good in the Marxist tradition that hold some weird interpretation thing about Marx or you know, have some, you know, truly absurd theories about one thing or another. You just sort of, you should just sort of learn to like deal with because you're dealing with kind of culty cranks. Hey, you just go well. That's unfortunate, but they got this other stuff that's pretty good. So let's, uh, you know, stay trying to stay positive. Yeah, like um, I was looking into this the other day, and one of the guys from the TSSI, you know, there's Andrew Kleiman, but there's also Ted McGlone. And I couldn't find that much information on Ted McGlone. But what I did find is a is a Rate My Professor page that had a bunch of students saying how he was a 9-11 truther. Um, that's all I, you know, I couldn't find that much on him. But it was just one of those things where, you know, I don't know, like value theory stuff I've been learning on the TSSI is, like, pretty interesting. And I think valuable, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Like, but so far, it's been interesting. 
And so, thanks, Ted McGlone. But but also that guy, same guy. You know what I mean? I could, I, I mean, I see enough of the appeal of 9-11 truther stuff that I, I can't even hate that too much, you know? Yeah, I, I totally understand that, honestly. Like, I... Like, why did they find, like, the guy's passports intact, like, down the street from, like, the Twin Towers? Like, that's fucking weird. I'll be honest. It's more rational to me than Stalinism. It is. <laughs> it is. It's, I'll, I'll say it right here. Esri says, 9-11 truthers, more, more understandable to me than Stalinism. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, it, it makes way more sense to, you know, ask questions about, like, why did that happen than to be, like... <laughs> Uh, actually, <laughs> nothing bad happened to the Soviet Union, and all of that is bourgeois lies. <laughs> right. I mean, and you know, very similar. Oh, it's oh, you want you just believe anything the mainstream media tells you to, do you? Like you know, yeah, very similar argumentation. It's, yeah, it's pathological reasoning. <laughs> uh, um, let's see. I don't know. Should we hop, skip, and jump to the development of the production force, productive forces? Or, uh, oh, you know what? Narrow and broad historical materialism, where the broad historical materialism isn't just concerned with, you know, economic base and, you know, superstructure and productive forces. Like, and you're also, you know, thinking about just the general, like, equilibrium with nature that's going on or you know or lack thereof you know what do you call it the sort of metabolic um exchange between society and nature as part of a broader historical materialism which you know without like carving it up into different names or whatever what he's getting at with like broad historical materialism is is what a lot of people think of as dialectical materialism as a broader worldview um, you know, the old kind of like orthodox Marxist stuff that also runs through the tank tradition where dialectical materialism is the broader philosophy of science and historical materialism is the applied like socio-anthropology, you know, like he's just calling it broad historical materialism yeah and i mean i think you'd probably have to bring in some to really study that you'd probably have to bring in uh is the term exobotany is that what it is i feel like there's a lot of like archaeology like isn't that like or am i thinking like xenobotany all right whatever i'm trying to think of like the archaeological like uh it's like it's like archaeology but for plants and shit you know what i'm saying okay i mean i'm listening it's like paleontology, but for plants. I'm not sure what the fucking term is. Anyway, right. long point is, you, you probably need some of that and kind of mix it in with, like, archaeological research, I think, probably, to really examine that sort of thing, like, in ancient societies. And the the kind of impacts, like, we're saying, talking, talking about, like, the kind of impacts that, like, maybe ancient climate change or, like, ancient civilizations had on their environment as they, like, developed them and settled them and so on, right? Like you could incorporate that, yeah, into like a historical materials analysis. But I think it, the, I feel like the kind of disciplines you'd bring into the research would, might be a little bit different than you would typically get from like regular ass, so, you know, history. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, that's just I was just thinking that. Yeah, anyway. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, we recorded this in 
mid-February. And by the time you're hearing it, it's, uh, well, the quarantine might be lifted where you're at. But, uh, if you're still in, hopefully you're hanging in there. Uh, I know there's this meme going around where it's, you've probably seen it, it's Jim from The Office looking through the blinders and smiling, and the caption is just, me, when the first wave of y'all go back outside when it's quote-unquote all clear. And, uh, that's what I'm doing. I'm taking it easy. I'm gonna see how this whole thing shakes out. Um... I think everyone's just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And there's like... Six or seven shoes coming. <laughs> but this is the world we live in now. You know? And if you... If you are banking on restabilization long term... Uh, you are not making a good bet. Period. And if you haven't figured it out by now... I... I mean, you're not listening to this, but if you if if you haven't figured that out by now, I don't know what to tell you. But uh, hopefully, 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 we can get our shit together and harvest something from this and turn turn this thing into something good for everyone. Was that vague enough? Write in and let us know. Uh, Swampsidechats at gmail.com You can uh, also contact us on the main social media places. If you want to support the show, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Though I understand, you know, if times are tight, you don't want to do that. Totally makes sense. Uh, yeah. So until next time, Keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.